Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke. Two sausages are laying in a pan together, and one sausage looks at the other sausage and goes, Oh my god, it's getting hot in here. And the other sausage looks at him and goes, Holy crap, a talking sausage! I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from 89.3 KPCC in Los Angeles, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your next dinner party. Our icebreaker this week came from Buck Down, frontman for the funk rock circus called The Mutator. Later, we'll be talking with our guest of honor, award-winning author Sarah Swanyan Bynum. But first, how about a little small talk? All right, Rico, to sum up the headlines this week, a bunch of powerful people met in Washington to help stimulate the U.S. economy, a bunch of powerful economic leaders met in Davos, Switzerland to stimulate the world economy, and everyone else met with their career counselor down at their local unemployment office. But the folks at your dinner party will surely know all that, hopefully not too intimately. So we asked our colleagues at Marketplace to tell us about some stories your guests won't know. Patty Hirsch, senior editor here at Marketplace. What story are you going to be talking about at your dinner parties this weekend? I think it's going to be the outrage about John Thane. That's the former CEO of Merrill Lynch's adjustments to his office after the previous CEO, Stan O'Neill, left. He said he had to change the office because Stan O'Neill's office was unworkable for some reason. And he put in things like an antique commode and some sort of you know, $2,000 wastebasket. I think Thane's decisions make perfect sense considering he was bringing Merrill Lynch into a wastebasket and flushing it down a commode. You know, you would want to make sure you have a good one. <laughs> that's, that's very cruel. Alison Gilbert, production assistant at Marketplace Money. What is your story of the week? Well, have you heard of the bacon explosion? I have not. Okay, well, it's this um, recipe that's gotten a lot of hits online and basically it's a, you take strips of bacon and you weave them together. You weave them together? sort of like a yeah they're woven in a big square like a like a bacon welcome mat yes exactly it's got a bunch of sausage in it and you roll it up and you bake it and it it's 5000 calories and 500 grams of fat have you had one of these things oh god no i'm jewish stacy vanek smith what story are you going to be talking about at your dinner party this weekend well <laughs> i can't even say it so I like it already. Yeah, the creator of Star Trek and his wife are going to be shot into space. <laughs> <laughs> what is go- what's going on? Why? Well, the guy that created Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry, died back in 1991, but his wife just recently died, and they, they had commissioned to be shot into space by this company called Celestis. So he's been hanging around for <laughs> 17 years? Yeah, apparently the economy's gotten so bad that even dead people want to leave Earth. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our recession-proof history lesson with booze. First, as always, the history. 27 years ago this week, the Elk Cloner was born, Brendan. Now, most people will probably assume that's a new wave band, but actually it was something far more annoying. Our friend Michelle Philippi is going to tell us all about it. Back in 1982, most 15-year-old geeks got their kicks inventing D&D characters. Rich Screnta invented the computer virus. It figures, Screnta was a computer whiz and a shameless prankster. His favorite gag? He'd give his high school bunnies floppy disks with really cool video games, which he'd program to crash right at the best part. 
Soon, his pals got so fed up, they wouldn't accept discs from him anymore, so he had to figure out how to sneak digital booby traps onto their computers. That's when Skrenta's teenage brain gave birth to the scourge hackers now call a boot sector virus. He named his Frankenstein monster Elk Cloner. Skrenta put the cloner virus on his high school's Apple IIe. Every time a student inserted a floppy disk, that disk would get infected too. The disk would then infect other computers. And soon, Skrenta was able to launch missiles at the Soviet Union. Just kidding. Actually, the worst thing Elk Cloner did was force infected computers to display a poem. Elk Cloner, the program with the personality. It will get on all your disks. It will infiltrate your ships. It will stick to you like glue. It will modify RAM, too. Send in the cloner. So Baudelaire, Scranta wasn't. But he did manage to survive the onslaught of wedgies that probably ensued. In fact, he went on to co-found the Open Directory project, which helps make Google work. Meanwhile, jerks everywhere took the Elk Cloner concept and ran wild with it. Virus protection now costs the world about $40 billion a year. So that's the history. Now for the booze to serve along with it. On the line is Miles Thomas. He's behind the bar at Bronzino in Seattle, hometown of Bill Gates, whose operating system viruses do so love to feast upon. Hi, Miles. Hello. You've heard our history lesson. What drink does it inspire you to make? Well, I had to name a drink after the actual virus just because it was so inspiring. The Elk Cloner is the name of my drink. Of course. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I decided that uh, Absolute Vodka was being born right about the time the Elk Cloner was being born. So I figured that there would be a great marriage there. Really? The, uh, Absolute only came out in the, in the 80s? Well, it became really popular in the early 80s. All right. So how do you make this thing? So we have the two and a half ounces of Absolute Vodka. There's an ounce and a half of fresh squeezed grapefruit juice, one ounce of white grape juice, a half an ounce of Damianda, and one dash bitters. Wait a minute, uh, what's Damianda? Damianda is the flower liqueur from Central America, and it's actually a natural aphrodisiac as well. Traditionally, it's given to the bride uh, at a wedding to um, promote many offspring. So maybe this is the part of the drink that sort of lures you to take in the virus. Well, a bit, and if you're not careful, you might be cloning yourself after drinking one of these. <laughs> um, <laughs> I ran into her on computer camp. So, Brendan, when I was growing up, I actually remember working with an Apple IIe, and, like, I would rather have a virus than half of the video games that were written for that computer. There was actually a game called Lemonade Stand. That sounds awesome. It sounds like your parents really loved it. (laughs) They couldn't spring for an Atari. Anyway, uh, send your sympathy letters, or if you've got a lame computer virus, embed it in an email and send it to me at dinnerparty at kpcc.org. I ran into her on computer camp. Computer getting bored. Hardcore, it started like a bore, ending up on the floor. Our guest of honor this week is author Sarah Swinian Bynum. 
Her most recent novel is Miss Hempel Chronicles, and her very first novel, Madeline is Sleeping, was a finalist for the National Book Award. And Sarah, tell me about that. What was that like? It was dreamy. <laughs> it was really wonderful. Um, it was also strange because there was sort of a little mini controversy that year. I remember, yeah. Can you can you maybe give us a, a quick summary of it? Yes. Some people were dismayed that the five finalists were all women from New York who hadn't sold large numbers of books. Um, so we became known as the five obscure women from New York. Uh. <laughs> it's interesting because five women in New York are the only people who buy books still. So. Exactly. <laughs> but I guess it was the first year that there had been only women finalists. So the New York Times ran a piece where they had the covers of our books and then our paltry sales figures under each of our oh. books. <laughs> Brutal. And now you could, on the next book of yours, have the, the paltry sales figures of the New York Times print edition. <laughs> I know, sweet revenge. <laughs> well, what is a question that you're kind of tired of being asked? How long did it take you to write this book? Because then I have to give the shameful answer, 10 years. That is pretty shameful. And it's under 200 pages. <laughs> so wait, what the hell is going on? What are you doing with yourself? <laughs> oh, day jobs, raising of children, procrastination. So we have another question we always ask on the show, which is tell us something we don't know, either about yourself or just something in general, something that you haven't shared before. Even though I, I live in Los Angeles now and, and recently moved here, um, very few people know that I in fact lived in Los Angeles previously. I moved here as a teenager so that I could become friends with Guns N' Roses. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, it didn't work out. <laughs> well, tell me about it. What, what happened? I worked at a coffee shop on Melrose, and I did end up seeding Slash, but that was the extent of my contact. But what's great is that I've been reading Slash's autobiography, and he went to the same elementary school that my own daughter's going to be enrolling in in a oh. year. So now I feel like closer to Slash than ever. <laughs> so what I wasn't able to make happen as a teenager, now as a middle-aged mom, the dream's coming true. <laughs> I think Slash was into middle-aged moms then too, so <laughs> you might have had a better shot. We've got more info about Sarah, plus our cocktail recipe and all the info from this week's show. It's on our handy cheat sheet, and you can download it from dinnerpartydownload.com. So we've met our guest of honor. Now it's time for the main course, where we stuff our faces and call it journalism. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but first, Brendan, I do just want to point out on our last show... I gave a shout-out to the Pittsburgh Steelers. I remember. And they are going to be playing in the Super Bowl this weekend. Mm-hmm. You chose to diss the Eagles, and you will be spending the weekend eating cheese steaks and weeping. <laughs> That's amazing, Rico. Uh, could you give a magic shout-out to the people of Darfur? <laughs> and uh, while you're at it, the world economy and my Honda Civic. I'll, I'll consider it. Okay. Now, on a Super Bowl weekend back in my hometown of Pittsburgh, there would be no dinner parties. It would be just me with a bowl of pierogies. <laughs> Why is that different than any other weekend with Rico? Shut up. <laughs> They're Poland's version of dumplings, pierogies are, and I heard some of the best around were made by Catherine Dabrowski at her restaurant called, wait for it, 
polka. Okay, uh, you can see how we are making pierogies here. Where did you get this recipe? Uh, from my grandmother. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, got, I, I see the pierogies in the supermarket aisle, you know, the frozen ones. It's almost always a cheddar pierogi. And I, when I think of Poland, I don't think of cheddar cheese. Maybe I'm completely wrong in that. What is the classic sort of Polish filling for a pierogi? Meat, like pork and beef mixed together because Polish people love to eat meat. Do you actually, do you make those? Yes, we do. One with meat, one with sauerkraut and stewed mushrooms and potato and cheese, the third one. And what kind of cheese do you use? Uh, well, we use uh, like a farmer cheese and we mix it also with cream cheese. Oh my God. Yeah. I can feel my heart exploding right now. It's really good. It's really good. You will see. All right. Describe this to me. Uh, we are serving you three different types of pierogies. One of the best pierogies in Los Angeles. Hippie I don't know which one's which. What is your name? Basha. Basha is uh, our daughter. She's seven years old. What's your favorite kind of pierogi? Cheese. The cheese one. Hold on. Mmm. That is really good. And the noodle part is a lot less thick than what I'm used to. Oh, and I wanted to ask you, what is the best way to serve pierogies? I've seen some people just boil them. Uh, boil them first and then pan fry with onion and garlic, lots of garlic. Oh my. Basha, by the way, has now put some raw dough on her face. So it sort of looks like a little dough respirator. Can you talk to me through that? <laughs> What did I say? I don't know. What did you say? I can't talk. <laughs> Me neither, dude. Mm. Rico, I'm telling you the God's honest truth when I say that in college, certain friends of mine banned me from going to their house because I was decimating their pierogi stash. <laughs> really? I'm serious. My friend's mother used to pack his freezer with pierogies, and I would eat about 36 at a sitting, and they finally wouldn't let me uh, come over. You are, you are a pierogi predator. Uh, they, I think there's a UN resolution banning me from eating pierogies. It's like overfished water. And that's the Dinner Party Download for this week. Special thanks to Eve Tro, Stephen Salardino, and Mary Marcus. And of course, to John Raby and Queen Kim. You can check out their show Off Ramp. It's at kpcc.org. We leave you, as always, with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or recovering from this weekend's dinner party. I actually found a vinyl copy of this laying on my street last week. It's Billy Preston's 1972 album, Music Is My Life. And this is his cover of the Beatles' Blackbird. Bon appétit. Swinging in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brandon Francis Newnham. No, you're not. Dude, are you going to eat the rest of that sandwich? Maybe you are, Brandon. Word.